Life Skills 101, Skills for a Digital Age, sponsored by the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network and True North Homeschool Academy. True North offers live online classes, clubs, ebooks, and more. From special needs to parent classes, True North builds a community through digital format in an age of loneliness and desolation. Our host, Lisa Nearing, is a homeschooler with five kids who was homeschooled with her husband, Dr. David Nearing, for 27 years. They are committed to equipping fellow homeschoolers and Christians with the tools they need to navigate a complex world in need of a savior. Now, without further ado, Lisa Neary. Hey, everybody. It is Lisa Neary from True North Homeschool Academy with another week of Life Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. And I'm super excited to have Adam Prusan on the show with me this week. Adam has taught at True North for the last three and a half years, I think. Wow. Has it been that long? It might have been. <laughs> um, Adam it's teaches. Been in 2018, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think it's been that long. Yeah. Okay. So Adam teaches politics, philosophy, and economics, which is an honors level class. And we are turning that into a three credit class for the fall of 2023. He also teaches a very intriguing class called Strategy, War, and Peace, um, which talks about why countries go to war, why they stay at peace, and how to help your kids understand media and um and really understand politics. And that's really your bailiwick, isn't it, Adam, is politics. And um, I think you've read every Senate brief since the 80s. Is that right? <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, 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 read a, I read a lot of I read a lot of documents that most people don't read. That's yeah. the, let's, let's leave it there. Yeah. I'm glad to have you on. So we had been talking and I'd asked you if you'd be willing to do a podcast after the midterm elections on just how to think about the elections for those of us coming from maybe a more conservative place. Um, what do we, how do we understand these elections? And that got us into a whole conversation and we decided to kind of, kind of move the conversation a little bit, but you have so much great insight. And one of the comments you made to me is we need to be looking to Brazil. And that is intriguing to me because that's not anywhere I would have thought to look to. So <laughs> maybe we should just use that as a, as a jumping off place. <laughs> May I just say two? There, there's two things I wanted to say by way of introduction. Okay, so the the first the first is that um, I had I had a little shock uh, last school. Wait, was it last school year? <laughs> was that the last school year or the year before that? <laughs> now I can't remember. They all run together. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, I was. This was the year that I was teaching the um, 20th century U.S. history through movies class. Yeah. And um, my best student in the class, who had been a total and complete pleasure to teach uh, all school year, and it was about the second to the last, second or third to the last session um, of the, of the, it was like maybe the third to the last session of the school year. And I was finishing up, uh, I was finishing up a three-part series about about the age of Reagan, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, I made a sort of an offhanded comparison of President Reagan with President Trump, and the point of it was not to uh, praise President Trump in any way because I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I when I'm teaching classes, I try really hard to be politically neutral as far as as far as humanly possible. So what the point wasn't to praise President Trump, but I, I, I threw in a couple of positive statements about him. The reason I did that was because 
The main point I was making was I was going, going to compare him unfavorably with President Reagan on the, on the dimension of communicating with the American people, okay? Because President Trump always did a great job of communicating with his base, Mm-hmm. But that's a very different thing from communicating with the people as a whole, the citizenry as a whole. So I was going to be making a negative comparison. So the reason I threw in a couple of positive comments about President Trump is that I wanted the students to know that I was not just dumping on Trump. OK, I was coming from a place of at least neutrality, if not respect. OK. Um, and the reason for the criticism, what the, re- the reason for the comparison was again, simply to help students understand what President Reagan was like. That was the ob- educational objective of the, of, the, of the point. Well, but as soon as, as, soon as, I, as, soon as I made those couple of, of, um, um, of, of praise, praising statements about President Trump, this student immediately disappeared from the screen. He turned off his uh, Zoom and, and left the class like three weeks before the end of the school year, left the class. And I got an extremely harsh note from his mom um, uh, talking, you know, uh, uh, the standard page long angry note about how what a horrible, horrible, awful, bestial human being Trump is and how dare I say anything positive about him in class. So the the reason I mention this is because... um, is because I want the whoever views this podcast to understand that personally, I don't care one way or the other about Trump. I I have I have a certain amount of admiration for the for the guy, and I have a certain amount of of reservations about him. What I care about is policies. What policies are is our country going to pursue? And I think that I think that we've been on a disastrously wrong course in terms of policy for most of my adult life. And I would like to see us, I would like to see us get back to a sounder, saner policy, something more like what the founders had in mind. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you hear me in this, in this podcast, I have no choice but to use words like Trump, like the Republican party, because those are, those are the, the potential vehicles for for correcting the course. Okay. Um, but I have no, I've never contributed a dime to the Republican Party, and I never contributed a dime to President Trump's campaigns. And if if there were if there were better vehicles for achieving the policy objectives that I want to see achieved, if the, if someone started a third party and it looked like it had a uh, a ghost of a chance of success, I would be all over it in a minute. Um, so, so when I'm, when I, when I mention political specifics, a particular political leader or a particular political party throughout this entire conversation, please understand I'm only using those, those as handy dandy reference points, as hooks to hang ideas on. Mm-hmm. It's not like I have some sort of religious, uh, religious affinity for, for a particular candidate or a particular party. It's just, it's just impossible to have a practical conversation about these things without having those little hooks to hang your ideas on. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, so that, so with that disclaimer, <laughs> uh, we should, we can begin. Yeah. But I think it's important. I mean, it's both interesting and important that the disclaimer is there. 
it's interesting that we have to have those disclaimers when we have political conversations anymore, because I mean, I think we're about the same age um, and growing up, people were really, it seems like I remember conversations where people were really, they were either in one camp or the other Republican or Democratic, but you could have conversations without a disclaimer. Um, people felt strongly about it, but not to the point of, you know, the can the whole cancel culture and death threats like today, which is bizarre in my opinion, um, just very odd. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and, and, and by the way, there's, you know, there's another disclaimer it's not even a disclaimer. It's like an introduction, which is that, um, and because it's something I, that I, that I thought about when you first asked to, to have this uh, conversation is there is a, there is a, a deep strain in Christianity. And by the way, in G- I'm Jewish. Every, I hope everyone knows that I'm not, that I'm not a Christian. I, I have the deepest admiration for Christians and I don't, again, um, the the reason that I as a Jew am so am so honored and and delighted to be able to help conservative Christians is that without you, I mean, there aren't enough of us <laughs> to make this the kind of country that it needs to be, to make the, the kind of country that, that I was born into. There aren't enough of us. And so if, if, if without Christians, it's not going to get done. Right. It just isn't going to get done. So so. You know, whatever I can do to help, I'm ha- I, I'm happy and, and as I say, honored and grateful to do. Um, but the, so there's a, there's a strain in in Christian among Christians, especially very traditional Christians, mm-hmm. um, that go I think goes back to to Paul's letters mm-hmm. uh, that that well okay you know, the world is the world. The world is, the world is ruled by Satan. And um, we, we are, we are uh, eagerly anticipating a better and everlasting life after this world. And so, okay, but does that mean that what happens in this world is not too important? I I don't know. Obviously that's a theological question and, and, and it's not one that I have any competence to speak about so i guess i guess what i want to say is that um that everything in this conversation is is premised on the idea that for whatever reason the christian audience consists of people who think that that this world is important and that trying to make this world better um you know, however that may pale in comparison to the eternal life, that it's something that God wants us to do. Yeah. And, and, and then I would, I would even extend that, extend that out. And I would say that, and I know you, I think your husband would agree with me on this, who's much, who's much greater New Testament scholar than I am. I'm not one at all, but the, 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 there is there is an I think that if we, if we think about the things that 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 Paul wrote um, in his letters about subordination and hierarchy and and um, how the slave should respect his master, but the, then the master should also be care, take good care of the slave. Um, there's certainly an, a, a, an eternal component to to those ideas in that there's there's a certain um there will always be hierarchy in society and and so there's a certain there's a, to a certain extent the the 
the admonition to to respect those above you in the hierarchy and to and to um, and to be and to be uh, good and gentle to people below you that has an eternal component. But I think that, I think it's important to remember that Paul was writing at a time when, first of all, slavery was simply an accepted part of the the natural order, and second of all. He was writing in a time where Christians were a persecuted minority and had no political power. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that even, even if we accept Paul's admonitions 100%, it, we, it, it, the Christians in the 21st century still have to ask themselves, well, wait a minute. It may, it may very well have been the case that in the first century, as a Christian and as a, as a, as a member of a politically powerless minority, I was not called to political action. But in the 21st century, living in a country that was created by devout biblical Christians for the purpose of of creating a better society for biblical Christians, um, does that not imply a certain degree of political responsibility on our part? This This is what your fathers and grandfathers gave you, do you not have some responsibility to keep it? Mm -hmm. Again, I can't, I can't pronounce judgment, but I'm saying it's, to me, it seems pretty suggestive. And I would, I would, I I don't know. What do you, what do you think? (laughs) You know, I, that it does, it does get back to the conversation we had before, because, um, you know, when we were talking about the midterms, my, my question has always been, Okay, I'm a, I'm I'm a homeschooling mom in the Midwest. Um, I have I've worked, but but really, what can I do? I mean, we're somewhat active in politics. Not I wouldn't say we're like crazy active in politics, but we write letters to the editor. We do some campaigning. Um, we send emails. All the, those kind of kind of simple things. But really, when when in my opinion, when you see um, the media skewing elections and um, some principalities and powers going on that that seem like a bigger force. Um, I my my question is, well, what what can I do? Um, you know, what do we do? Do we encourage our kids to go into politics? I'm not even sure I want to do that. I mean, politics seems pretty slimy to me right now, and it has for a while. I'm not saying just like recently. It just there's a lot of money, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of people who are willing to go above and beyond. Um, they cross lines to get their, to get their win. And, and that's not, that just, I don't really want to be participating in that. On the other hand, I have grandkids too. <laughs> and I really want them. I mean, I have loved growing up in a free America. I, I mean, especially as a woman, I got to be educated. I got to choose my husband. I got to have as many kids as I wanted. I mean, you know, as, as God allowed, we were able to move. We've traveled extensively all these things these freedoms that we take for granted we read whatever books we want to we write letters to the editor these are freedoms that we've just taken for granted i mean my kids aren't getting pulled out of my house in the middle of the night to go be enslaved somewhere i mean this is what a free america has afforded us and i'm really committed to that <laughs> i i've loved the privilege of living here it's been i mean no time in the history of the world have we had the freedoms I I feel like post-World War II have we had as we have in America. And 
I mean, I'm, I'm sad to see those freedoms slipping away little by little. Oh, I mean, horrified actually. That, that's what but, I think, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this, exactly. So in, in, I mean, I guess, I guess, again, this is, a, this is a, a question that one would put to Paul, right? Is like, okay, what would, what do you think of this 21st century? I mean, you said slaves be obedient to your masters, but if I was born a free man, should I passively accept being made into a slave? Yeah. Right. Well, and that gets, I mean, I mean, we think about those questions, right? Like how much social media should we be participating in? Should our 12 year olds have a cell phone? Should we turn off the Wi-Fi at night? Those seem like little things, but to me, those are all part of a response to those questions is yeah. how much enslavement, because it's easy to be enslaved. We have so much excess in America. Um, well, in this time in, in the world, really, you know, so. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up, see that, I don't want to get too stuck on on the slavery question, but but I think here's this is the closest I've been able to come with you know with the help of of great thinkers like like Victor Davis Hanson um, and and Aristotle <laughs> um, and John Locke and this is the closest I've been able to come to sort of giving the the postage stamp summary of where I think we are right now in the United States. And I, I and it's to me it's not a coincidence that the civil war metaphor is used a lot by people on both sides of the political spectrum um, to describe the the state of our culture right now. Okay, mm-hmm. really, we really are living in an era that's a lot like the 1850s, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that. Um, and by the way, I want to. I'm going to give J.D. Vance, the newly elected senator from Ohio, some credit for for pointing me in the right direction on this also. Um, That, okay, so we so we go back to uh, how did slavery destroy the Roman Republic? Hmm. Well, pretty easy answer, right? The the Roman Republic originally was extremely successful both in being a free society and in being a militarily successful society the reason it was successful was because there was a broad there was a broad strong middle class of of independent landowners farmers who kept themselves strong and paid their own way in life and were were had enough of a surplus that they were able to arm themselves and serve in the Roman legions when called upon. Mm-hmm. And as a result of this, the Romans developed the best army anywhere anyone had ever seen. And the Romans were able to conquer surrounding territories. Well, and of course, but, but per the ancient tradition, they would enslave some of the conquered peoples. Well, as the number of slaves in the Roman economy grew larger and larger, um, the, the, the relatively small class of, of, of wealthy people rapidly got wealthier and wealthier. Their farms got larger and larger and larger. And at the expense of the middle class who were, most, who were dispossessed because they could, not, they could no longer compete 
with slave labor because slave labor is much cheaper than 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 free person labor is um and and that was when the roman republic turned into the roman empire was when was when it the when the middle class essentially was dispossessed and when you when i when you look at when you look at the american society in the south before the civil war uh and this is something that historians didn't pay too much attention to until until the last few decades and now they've done they've done an enormous amount of research on it and i i've only looked at one book i didn't even read it all the way through i just i just browsed it um that because this book was sort of a summary of the of the last few decades of historical research but it's pretty well it's pretty well understood now that Southern society uh, before the Civil War was actually very feudal. It was not Republican. Yeah. Because, because the middle class was tiny to non-existent and, and, and virtually powerless. It was a feudal aristocracy that ran things. And why? Because the wealthy had lots of slaves and huge plantations, just like the, just like the ancient Roman wealthy. So... When, when you talk about how free the country was when you when you were born, when I was born, because of course, because because the mid twentieth century was the zenith of the American middle class. Yeah. And then what started happening um, in this started and started in the seventies and it snowballed in the in the nineties. What started happening was the that wealthy Americans soon discovered that there were two enormous pools of of below market wage labor that were available to them. The first pool was simply illegal immigrants from Latin America, and then eventually just moving the factories to Mexico. And the second pool was China. And, and as we, and as we know, a lot of that, a lot of that Chinese labor is not merely below market wage labor. It's actually slave labor. Right. And so surprise, surprise, in the last 40 years, the American middle class has been gutted financially. Mm-hmm. Wow. Imagine that. Same thing that happened in the South, the same thing that happened in ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. The Amer- American middle class cannot compete with with below market rate, below market rate labor, right? With vast pools of below market rate labor, and what that what that is, it is it has hollowed out, destroyed the middle class. It is also, um, it is also enriched the upper class and the and the and the um. Let's let's call it the, the class of lords. And you, to use you know medieval terms, right? There are lords, and then there's then there's a, a, a broader class of knights mm-hmm. who work in service to the lords. You know, so so the high powered lawyers, the tenured professors at universities. So you have you have this this upper class, this ruling class, mm-hmm. that has been has has never been so vastly enriched. Because most of the profits of the below market labor have accrued to them mm-hmm. at the expense of the middle class, and so you now have, I'm, I, I there, there's a there's there's a part of my brain that's listening to me talk and saying, you know, 
this is crazy, Adam. You're supposed to be a conservative and you sound like Noam Chomsky in the 1960s. You know, you sound, you sound like a hardcore left wing radical in the 1960s complaining about the man and the system. Yeah. Um, well, okay, but that's, that's what's happened. That is exactly what has happened. Yeah. And, and JD Vance, by the way, when I say he helped put me on the, on the tr- trail of this, you know, in my opinion, the reason he won his race for the Senate was he reduced all of this to one simple sentence, which is, I mean, it, I, I don't think he ever actually made it into a campaign slogan, but he used it in a lot of his speeches and media appearances. It should be possible in the United States to, have, to support a middle-class family on a single income. Period. Because that's that was the world that we were born into in the 60s and 70s, was it was possible to support a middle-class family on a single income. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Even in the homeschool world, when we started homeschooling 30 years ago, everybody I know that went home, that homeschooled, the moms quit their jobs, stayed home, homeschooled. It, that's not happening anymore. In the homeschool world, the the growing number of both parents working while they homeschool, it is just, it's increased by so much. I mean, it's a totally different world in the homeschooling world in a different market. So yeah, um, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And, yeah. and, and the other, the other aspect of, of, the gutting of the middle class, which the, which my PPE students know because we look at we look at Aristotle, right? And and Aristotle is he's adamant that in order to have a successful a, what what he what Aristotle calls a polity or a mixed regime, where in other words a, a system like the one we have, you know, uh, the American the American system that the founders gave us was a good adaptation to to the to modern times of Aristotle's mixed regime where where our constitution has that little element of monarchy and the fact that the president is a, a single executive and it has a little element of aristocracy that we have a senate that that serves for 6 years and that and that they were by design meant to be a more aristocratic body and then we had the element of mass democracy represented by the house of representatives so it's a mixed regime, and 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 Aristotle thought that mixed regimes would tend to be the most stable, and mm-hmm. and would offer the best prospect for liberty and yeah. the least and the least possibility for corruption. But he was adamant that in a mixed regime, you can only have a mixed regime if the middle class dominates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the poor dominate, then you then you end up with what what he would call it, what he called a democracy, which he which to him was a corrupt form of government because the point of democracy as he, as he used it was for the, basically for the poor to dispossess the rich, for the poor to be stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's not a stable form of government. Um, and, and if the, and if the rich gets to get too powerful, then it would be an oligarchy right. instead of, instead of a mixed regime. Mm-hmm. And that's bad too. Yeah. And, yeah, so he was he was adamant, and he and he he was also adamant that that the because he you know he believed that in order to have a a a, a good a good uh, a good regime, you needed to have 
a good regime is based on virtue, mm-hmm. right? Moral virtue, mm-hmm. and and he believed that the middle class was the 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 repository of virtue, mm-hmm. um, because the the poor tend not to be virtuous because you know all they're worried about is is you know getting their next meal. Um, and, and sometimes they're even willing to steal. To, you know, the, the, Aristotle was very down on the poor, right? <laughs> and of course, this is pre-Christianity. So, so the, the poor at that time did not even have a, a, the kind of moral compass that even poor people have now. Um, but, uh, and the rich are not a repository of moral virtue because the rich tend to be very decadent and, and tend to spend a lot of their time just gratifying their appetites, mm-hmm. whatever those may be. Mm-hmm. So the moral class is the repository, the middle class is the repository of virtue. So, mm-hmm. so you know, it, 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 should be, it should be a matter of great concern, if not simply terrifying, what's happened to the broad American middle class over the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It should make us all truly truly scared Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of there are plenty of very very wise intelligent learned people who will just come out and say we no longer live in a democratic republic we live in an oligarchy now right yeah and that's to me that's not acceptable to me i don't want i don't want to live in an oligarchy i want to live in a democratic republic right I, I'm with you. So, I mean, and, and when we were talking about this before, you're like, we should look to Brazil. So tell me about why we should do that. Well, <laughs> and what are we looking for when we look to Brazil? <laughs> well, on, on, honestly, honestly, I lost, I have lost track of what's actually going on this minute in Brazil. I, I have not, I apologize. We spoke two weeks ago and I haven't even, I haven't even looked at the news in two weeks because I've been so involved in moving into my new place. Um, but, but what had been going on when, when we spoke, when we spoke, what had been going on was that Brazil had run a presidential election and, and the, the election was quote unquote won by, I think I've, I used air quotes twice now. I think I have to stop. I, I don't, I think air quotes are, are dangerous. Uh, it was won by the candidate, the, 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 um, the left-wing candidate, who was um, who was a convicted felon who had been in jail, and the the Supreme Court of Brazil had overturned his conviction, released him from jail, and then basically, you know, made other rulings that enabled him to run to run for president again, and and he and he apparently apparently narrowly defeated. Um, uh, President Bolsonaro, who was the who was a conservative nationalist candidate, um, and who all by, by all accounts had been an outstanding president, and Bolsonaro's party uh, increased the number of seats in 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 the Brazilian parliament in the election, but somehow Bolsonaro himself narrowly lost, getting reelected as president, and there have been. You know, there's there have been all sorts of charges of election interference and and fraud and so forth and so on, and and in Brazil for for several weeks after the election, literally millions of Bolsonaro supporters peacefully 
simply took to the streets mm -hmm. and waved flags and said, we're not going to accept this, the result of this election because it was obviously fraudulent. And so that's that was sort of what I meant. I apologize. It was kind of an off the cuff comment. But one of the things one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago was and, and it's and it's hard for me to say because, you know, you you just said it. You just said, look, uh, the, the people that the people that you work with, Christian homeschoolers who who can and should be the backbone of any of any movement to um, to restore the American Republic, um, you just said they're up to their eyeballs because they're they're working they're working mom and dad are both working and trying to homeschool and as we all know homeschooling means that homeschooling also means that your kids don't automatically get to be part of the, of the high school soccer team which means that you have to in addition to homeschooling you also have to devote an, an inordinate amount of time and effort to making sure that your kids have the proper social and athletic and and cultural uh and and extracurricular life that would have, that would be very easy if you if they were registered at the local public high school but it's but it's a it's got to be done from scratch so to yeah. speak by homeschoolers yeah so in in a, in and among that in a, among a mom and a dad who are already who are already working 18 hours a day just to keep up with everything um me, this unmarried, childless Jew, is about to come in and say, by the way, you have to add another layer to your responsibilities, which is political activism. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I don't know if I can even do that. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think, I guess, I guess, I guess the, 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 I might be wrong. Victor Davis Hanson might be wrong. The late, great Angelo Cotavilla might be wrong. Okay. Um, so if we're wrong, okay, if we're wrong, great. I I would love to be wrong, but it, but if we're right, if if we really are living under an oligarchic regime which has every incentive to to, con to continually increase its power at the expense of us, to be putting more of us in jail, to be running more of us out of our businesses, and you know, debanking us and deplatforming us and so forth. You know, what was what's the name of the of the the Mr. Phillips, the the baker in Colorado. Yeah, I, uh, they're yeah. still they're still after him. Another lawsuit against him. <laughs> Another so, one. <laughs> yeah. So so if 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 uh, if 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 I'm right about the tendency of the current regime, then our we only have three choices. Mm -hmm. One is to simply surrender and become slaves. Um, I don't like that choice. The third, the, the third choice is actual hot civil war. I don't really like that choice either. Um, and so that leaves only the middle choice, which is, which is political activism. To use the freedoms that we still have to try to restore the republic that we were born into. Yeah. And and when I say political activism, I I mean I, I was just I was just writing an email to a friend a couple of days ago. I mean literally on the scale of the civil rights movement of the late 50s and 60s. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, MLK style style um, activism. Uh, mm-hmm. And and since the and since the parents, since the moms and dads have their hands full, it's probably going to have to be done by the youth. Mm. Which, by the way, a lot of a lot of the MLK era activism was done by by high school and college students. Right. Um, I, I'm I'm pausing for breath because I, I could go on. But. It, it's interesting. I mean, I I think one of the things that's intriguing to me is the rise of Jordan Peterson's popularity, and who does he appeal to? Young men. And um, the suicide rate among young men, particularly young white men, is at epidemic proportions, but CD, nobody's talking about it because of the demographic, right? Um, but I think so many of these young men are just feeling like uh, the world is saying, you don't have a place, you're not really that needed, don't be manly. Um, and so they're feeling this great sense of despair. But what you're saying is that we desperately need these young men to take leadership in the, in the world right now. And and so there yeah and and there, and there is there is so here's the good news right the the good news is um, so I've been I've been very involved the last couple of years with Claremont Institute which is a which is a think tank that is dedicated to the study and the study of the American founding and to mm-hmm. promoting the ideas of the American founders and and this year I. Um, one of the, one of their they have a number of fellowship programs where they they'll they'll gather 10 15 20 um promising people of various descriptions um so they have one fellowship program which is called the, the uh, George Washington fellows which is for um recent college graduates who who think they might want to be you know in the conservative political movement in one way or another and so they they uh they have this fellowship program for them. Um, they have a, a, a Madison fellow program, which is for, for attorneys. Um, and then, and then they have this Lincoln fellows program. And this is, this is aimed at um, people mostly in their thirties, people who have already gone well into their careers as journalists or as political activists or as academics or one 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 thing or another but are you know but are active in conservative causes in one way or another and so this is the lincoln fellows program and so this year last year i would excuse me in in yeah we're still in 2022 right <laughs> yeah <laughs> for just a few more days <laughs> the last year in, in in 2021 because of because so claremont is based in in claremont california and they usually hold their fellowship programs somewhere in Southern California. Uh, in 2021, because of COVID restrictions, they decided to hold the Lincoln Fellows in Las Vegas. Hmm. And since I live here in Las Vegas and I'm a donor, they they asked me if I'd like to come, and I said, of course, you know. So I I I was I was invited to attend the the last the last session and the and the final dinner of the Lincoln Fellows program. And I was so impressed that um, that this year I decided I would sponsor one of the Lincoln fellows. So I sponsored a Lincoln fellow. Um, the fellow I sponsored, by the way, is a young air force officer uh, who is, who's hoping at some point soon to get out of the air force. Um, and, 
so, so here's, here's one of the hopeful things that I notice uh, about this group. So this was 14, this was a group of 14 people. As I say, all in their, in their 30s, one or two maybe in their early 40s. Um, 14 people, three females, 11 males. Of the 11 males, there were a couple like my, like my fellow who was in the Air Force who were required by their employment to be clean shaven. Oh, interesting. Okay. But all of the others, so it's, I think it was eight or nine of the 11 males were fully bearded. Sorry. And they were all gym rats. And so I was truly inspired by that because here were, here were a bunch of young men who were, first of all, of course, passionately intellectual, right? They were, they were not professional athletes or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, did, and they, weren't, they, weren't, uh, they weren't truckers or steel workers. They weren't people who worked in muscular professions. Right. Um, but they were, they were dedicated to, and this, seemed, this would seem to be part of the, the, the next wave of the conservative political movement would seem to be um, this this dedication to traditional manliness, mm. yeah. which is which is a that is a hugely encouraging sign. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very very encouraging. And um, then and then yeah. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Well, there's just so much role confusion going on. Not just gender identity confusion. It, that's that's almost a subset of the role confusion. Um, we know, I know, I know several young men who are house husbands while their wives go to work and support their family because their wives are making more money than them. Um, and I'm no dis on that. And that. Yeah. And that's, and that's not, I, I suspect, I mean, yes, there will be, there will be couples that can, that can handle that. But, yeah. but in terms of, so you can never, you could never say to any individual couple that that won't work. But sociologically, across the broad spectrum, um, husbands who are not the breadwinners have it, it. It doesn't work out well, right? Yeah, sociologically, it's it's bad. It's bad for the men. It's bad for the marriage. I mean, yeah, yeah. D- divorce. Divorce. When 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 the when the wife makes more money than the husband, the divorce rate skyrockets. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, when you have when you have homosexual couples in particular. If you have two men, two men earning versus one woman earning, um, you have a political imbalance right off the bat, <laughs> you know, just from a, just from a money in, uh, standpoint. Um, so anyway, that's kind of another aside, but um, yeah, very encouraging. So the, the other piece of good news is that, um, although, I mean, this is, this is, this is good news, but it's also, it, it's also cause for, for reflection. Um so just I'm just looking at my at my um, bookmarks bar on my browser, right? Mm-hmm. And so here are a couple of publications that I online publications that I look at all the time: mm-hmm. The Federalist, yeah. um, and American Greatness, and The American Conservative. And as a matter of fact, the the the, the managing editor of The American Conservative, a guy named Micah Meadowcroft was one of the Lincoln Fellows uh, at the Claremont program this year. And 
we got to, we got, we, we, we started, I started a friendship with a couple of the fellows, um, which I was very, very happy to do. And one thing about all three of these publications is that they are the, the core of their, of their writing crews, the, the, the people that are really making a difference in doing the reporting and the writing uh, for these publications are disproportionately attractive young Christian women. Mm. And as a matter of fact, the Federalist, if you, if you go and look at the staff list of the Federalist, um, they can't even keep up with the marriages because there's, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a writer for the Federalist whose maiden name was, was just, I don't know if it's pronounced Yashinsky or Jeshinsky, Emily, Emily Jeshinsky. Um, and on the staff page, she's still listed that way. And it's, I mean, your email address, she's still, you know, E Jashinsky at federalist.com. But no, she's been married for about a year and she's already, she's been using her married name. Uh, when she, when, when she actually posts a column, she uses her married name. Um, and, and, you know, the, the American conservative, uh, there is a, there is a gal, um, one of their new hires is, there's a there's a young lady named named Carmel Kokogi, who is from Nashville, Tennessee, who I met because I had endowed a, I had endowed a scholarship at, at Hillsdale College, and and Carmel was the first recipient of the Prusan scholarship at at uh, at Hillsdale College. So I met her when she was Carmel Kokogi, when she was a junior. A couple of years later, she's graduated. She's married to her college sweetheart, so she's now Carmel Richardson, and she writes for the American Conservative. Oh, very cool. And and you know, I didn't when I was when I met Michael Meadowcroft, you know, who, who's her boss, right? I didn't even I didn't even make the connection oh, until cool. I saw until I saw a picture of Carmel, Carmel Richardson. And I, now that looks familiar. And then I said, oh, sure enough, she graduated from Hills. Is that is that yeah? Uh-huh. That's so, so they, these are, these are, there's this, there's, in addition to this solid hardcore of, of manly men, we also have this solid hardcore, very, very smart, attractive, womenly women. Yeah. Um, and, and another amazing thing about it is that, that these, these 19, 20, 21, 22 year old uh, Hillsdale College graduates, they are taking down, in terms of intellectually, they are taking down the editorial page of the New York Times. Mm, wow. It's, it's no contest. Wow. You know, we don't, we don't need, we don't need Victor Davis Hanson and Thomas Sowell and, and Dennis Prager. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got Emily Jashinsky. She's, she's just as good. Yeah. Right. I'm not ready to give up some of the guys you mentioned either, though. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not but but I'm not, but my point is, my point. I guess my point is that when when Thomas Sowell was was in his twenties and thirties, yeah. there were intellectual giants on the left for him to debate. Right. There aren't any more intellectual giants on the left. The left is com is intellectually completely and totally dead. Yeah. And it is so dead that 22 year old interns at the Federalist yeah. can whip the butt of of the, you know, the leading editorialists of The New York Times. Yeah. That's how dead the left is intellectually. OK, okay. 
you had, um, that is so encouraging. And the other thing, I love how you are just sewing into what you believe in. I mean, you, you've described yourself as an unmarried childless Jew, and yet you're sewing into the things you believe in and sewing into the next generation. And that's really encouraging because we can all do that. I mean, we can all do that. Um, so that is such a great, um, a great example for us to follow. Um, can I, can I tell you the downside, by the way, the down, the downside, the downside of the, of the fact that, that, that conservatives are so intellectually ahead of the left, the downside of it is, and this is why, this is why oh, literally just over the last couple of weeks, I've become more obsessed than ever before about the necessity of activism mm-hmm. is because if we're, if we're that far ahead of the left intellectually, yeah, then if politics were just a battle of ideas, we would have 350 seats in the House of Representatives right. and we would have and we would have a two-thirds majority in the Senate. Right. And we and Trump would still be president. Right. So obviously politics in America in the in 2022 is not just a battle of ideas. Right. Right. So all the great ideas in the world are not going to win for us. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why I'm so convinced, I'm more convinced than ever of the necessity of political activism. Right. And this is this is where I tell my my Charlie Kirk story, right? Yeah, do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I'm I see. There's a name that I'm pretty confident that anyone watching this podcast will know is Charlie Kirk and and Turning Point USA. And I've even had a couple of students at True North who asked to be excused from classes because they had to go to the Turning Point USA uh, rally. You know that, and of course, I was delighted to excuse them. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm I'm just going to tell you the story I told you last week yeah. because I think it I think it bears retelling, right? So um, so at this at this 2021 Lincoln Fellows uh, final dinner, there was a panel discussion um, anchored by by uh, Michael Anton, mm-hmm. who is one of the Claremont fellow Claremont Institute senior fellows, and he's also a a uh, a uh, senior lecturer at Hillsdale College. He works in Washington, D.C., teaches at Hillsdale and does programs for Claremont Institute. And one of the very smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I've met a few very smart people. Yeah. And Michael, um, we, he, wrote, he wrote an essay for, that was published in American Greatness called the Flight, 90, the Flight 93 Election. He wrote this essay back in 2016 um, about why it was so urgent that that we elect Trump and not let Hillary Clinton get into the White House. Mm-hmm. And so we, we had this panel discussion, the closing discussion of, of the Lincoln Fellows Program, and it's about political strategy. Yeah. What are we going to do? How are we going to turn this ship around? Right? Biden's president, what can we do? And there were three presentations, all of which I thought were interesting and intelligent, but there wasn't a single, as far as I could tell, there wasn't a single strategic idea there. Yeah. So I did, I did the thing that I never, ever, ever do because, you know, I used to work in public policy and I was a program director and I planned events and I, and I chaired events and I, you know, I, and I was the guy in charge of the big ballroom full of 500 people. And of course, the thing that I hated the most in, in my life as a program director was the obnoxious old man who got up and asked a question that wasn't really a question and couldn't stop talking. So I never, ever, 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 ever do that, right? But but that time, 
I, I decided I was going to break my rule and I was going to, and I was going to throw a real challenge at Michael Anton. And the reason I did it was because Charlie Kirk was in the audience because he was a Lincoln fellow that year. Yeah. And he was sitting there watching, you know, sitting in the back of the room watching and I was watching him. Right. So I got up and, and, and I challenged Anton and I said, look, um, I, I, I bring, brought up the, the incident at this restaurant. There was a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia called the Red Hen. It is still a restaurant, by the way. I looked it up. Mm-hmm. They, sit, they were closed for COVID, but they're back open again. Little farm-to-table restaurant. As far as I can tell, really good food. Um, and, and it's about two hours' drive from Washington, D.C., and it was in it was either in January of 2017 or January of 2018. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was at the time was President Trump's press secretary, now she's governor of Arkansas, I believe. Yeah. Um, so she and her family, her extended family, they had like about a dozen people. They had made a re- they made a reservation there, and they went to have a Friday night dinner at this restaurant. The owner of the restaurant, as soon as they were seated and they had ordered their drinks, the owner of the restaurant threw them out because she worked for Trump. Oh. And so I, I said, I recalled that incident to Michael Anton and I said, why didn't we do anything? Why, why was not that a cause for activism? You, you have to know that if if the political polarities were reversed, if it was a conservative restaurateur who threw a bunch of, of, of Biden administration officials out of the restaurant, you know that at, at the very, very, very least, um, that restaurant would have, would have been full of rotten eggs and toilet paper the next day. Yeah. Okay. Within hours, that restaurant would have been physically assaulted the restaurant owner probably would have been thrown out of his bank. Yeah. He would have been unpersoned completely, right? Um, so why why are why is it so impossible for us to give them a little a little taste of their own medicine, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. it didn't wouldn't even have to be violent, right? Why not Why not do a lunch counter sit in like like uh, student activists used to do in the MLK era? Why not? The next day, so that was a Friday night, right? So the next day, Saturday, Saturday, you know, that, that restaurant's only an hour's drive from, from Liberty University. Again, I just checked it on Google Maps, 54 minutes mm-hmm. um, for, uh, on Google Maps, right? Why not bus in 50 or 60 Liberty University students and they walk in the door of the restaurant peacefully the minute they open the door at five o'clock and you know they're going to be booked solid with reservation. So the students walk in the door at five o'clock. They sit down in every chair in the restaurant and they sit on the floor and they, they make it impossible for the restaurant to serve its customers. They're going to be costing the restaurant tens of thousands of dollars of business that night. Right. And, and they say, they say, we're, we're going to be peaceful. We're going to be peaceful, but until you apologize and until you, until you promise on a, to wear on a stack of Bibles that you're going to have the Sanders family for dinner and you're going to, and it's going to be free. You're not going to charge right. them, right? They have to schlep all the way back out to right. Lexington, Virginia again, right? Until you make it up to the Sanders, we're going to be doing this every night. Yeah. We're, we're going to make it impossible for you to serve. And if you want to call the police, 
and have the police drag us out physically, just like the just like the sheriff's deputies used to do in okay. in, um, in in North Carolina and and uh, and South Carolina to the to the to the lunch counter protesters. Fine, you can drag us out. We won't resist. Right. You know, we'll hold up our hands. You can. You, we'll make it easy for you to drag us out, but we will not get up and we will not move voluntarily. Right. We're going to sit here until you're you're open from five to eight thirty. We're going to sit here from five to eight thirty. Yeah. And if you want to tra- tra- charge us with trespassing and have us arrested, fine. But you're going to have to drag us out of here because we're not moving. Right. Because and and why are we doing this? Because beyond this is beyond civil rights. This is beyond anything to do with, with the written law. This is how Americans are supposed to treat other Americans. Right. Don't throw somebody out of a restaurant because you don't like their politics. Right. right. Period. Mm-hmm. So I asked that question. I mean, it was a little bit more abbreviated, yeah. right? When I asked it, but I asked that question, and and Michael Anton's response was, "Oh, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, whoever happens to be listening, this is leading up to a point, which I promise you, you will appreciate." Um, so, so Michael Anton's response was, "Well, because we're conservatives, we don't do that that kind of stuff, right?" And I said, "Well, isn't it about time we start?" Right. No one else has come up with anything that works. Right. Right. And of course, this was in 2021. Now we've been now we've been through the 2022 election. Now we know for sure that, that everything everyone else is doing ain't working. It's not right? working. Right. Right. Okay. So 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 at, so the, so I asked. That was the last question of the panel. Plan, panel closed. We adjourned. We adjourned to get up for dinner. I see Charlie Kirk because you know Charlie Kirk is the president of a large organization, and he's got dozens of people working for him and he's got a hundred balls in the air. So he's rushing out of the room with his cell phone in his hand because he's got 20 phone calls he has to return. And I walked in front of him and I stopped him and I said, Hey, hang on a minute. We have, we're not finished. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, who do you think I've been talking to for the last 10 minutes? (laughs) And he said, what? I said, I would never have I would never have done that if you hadn't been in the room. I would I the reason I asked the question about activism is because I've got the president of the biggest of the biggest conservative activist organization in the room. I'm not going to I'm not going to lay down on that one. So he so he said, "Well, what do you want to know?" I said, "When are your people going to going to start doing that?" And then he said he said the kids want to do that. Their parents won't let them. Wow. 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 And so when we were when we were talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe the first, maybe the one little thing that I can do is with with the backing of somebody like Lisa Nearing. And and I I by the way, I just I had a call this morning with my friend Katie Faust. I don't I don't know if you've heard of Katie. Yeah. She she is a she's a preacher's wife in Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. um, who started an organization called Them Before Us, which is a children's rights organization. And if you just look up Katie Faust, any it's K A T Y F A U S T. If you just if you just um, if you want to watch a fifteen minute speech that will make you cry, um. Watch Katie Faust's speech at the National Conservatism Conference. If you just if you just uh, go to YouTube and, and type in Katie Faust NatCon three, you will there is a there's a 15 minute speech that will be well worth your time. 
Okay. Um, and Katie is, she's about to publish her second book, which is about how to raise, con- how to raise conservative Christian children in a woke place like Seattle. Awesome. Okay. okay. So, so of course I ran this idea by her too. Um, and the idea is, what if there were a, what if there were a letter, um, a letter, you know, a letter from from your loving Christian parents to our to our beloved children, mm-hmm. okay, a letter about political activism from the parents to the children. Yeah. What the bare outline of the letter would would say was it would say, look, it, it would it would it would. This would be parents who basically agree with me that you basically got three choices, slavery, civil war, or activism. And activism is clearly the best choice. And then the letter would say, here's the kind of activism we approve of. We approve of the MLK kind of activism. We approve of loving, loving, peaceful activism that is, that, that is focused on persuading on changing the culture on shaming people who should be shamed yeah right the owner of the little red hen should be ashamed that th- that she threw a family out of a restaurant because of a political dispute right she should be ashamed of having done that she should feel guilty about it she should make yeah. penance right and that's the purpose of king's activism right right and and so the letter would say um we're not telling you what to do you know, you are, you are, we're, you are our beloved child and we are, we are so, you know, honored and grateful and thrilled and delighted at the way you've grown up. And now you're 18 or 19 or 20 and you're a high, you know, high school senior or you're a college student and you're making your way in the world. And we want you to know, we want you to know two things. One is that um, if you pursue this path, if you, if you pursue political activism, it will hurt. Mm-hmm. It will cause you a lot of pain, and 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 that will hurt us too. But the second thing we want you to know is, if you've made your own independent adult decision that this is what I want to do, we support you. Yeah. In other words, the letter is the letter is the answer to Charlie Kirk. Here yeah. are right. what if we could tell Charlie Kirk? Here are a hundred thousand parent Christian parents who would not tell their kids not to get involved, who, who are okay with their kids getting involved. Yeah. Now take those 100,000 kids and do, do something worthwhile with them. Well, and I do think, I mean, look, as parents, everything of importance that we do causes pain. You know, um, living a life of faith, getting married, having kids, being friends with our neighbors, hanging out with our in-laws. I mean, anything of great value really or relationally um is discomfort you know it causes discomfort and pain sometimes and we need to be able to say to our kids you know sometimes it's worth the pain to get to the other side that hope you know that i mean you had mentioned a couple weeks ago the whole nehemiah idea of you know uh, a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other and i think it's time for the parents to rise up and say we've been praying for a nehemiah generation we need to equip our Nehemiahs that are coming up after us because we can't, um, if we don't have a dagger in one hand, we're not going to have a trowel in the other. The trowel will go away. We won't have, there's such a great gift in work and work that we enjoy and work that we love. And if the middle class goes away, those choices of work that we love, that goes with it. Um, 
you know, and so I think it's, it's time now to, to equip our kids to go out and do hard things that are going to require sacrifice. Um, being just being a friend requires sacrifice, right? I mean, any kind of relationship is negotiation and, you know, and and I love the fact that you went up to him and said, you're not getting out so easy. (laughs) I mean, that was actually kind of sacrificial on your part right there, you know? Um, Well, yeah, because, because see, that's the thing is that, is that when I, when I, when I've seen videos of Turning Point USA rallies yeah. or for that, you know, for that matter, Trump rallies. OK, I see energy and I see commitment. What I don't see is strategy. How yeah. are we to direct that energy to a positive result? Yeah. Right. Right. So. Right. Um, so that's 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 why I think. Um, yeah. That's why I think activism is such a, is so is so important. And, you know. We, we have to bring this thing into our landing, but, but something I'm going to be thinking about for the coming, my, my project for the coming year is to try to come up with some strategic recommendations, you know, to, toward exactly what intermediate goals should the activism be directed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because, you know, that's the, that's the, everybody knows where we are and everybody knows where we want to be. Well, okay, but there's a few steps to, how you get there and and thinking those through that's 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 hard yeah that is hard well i commend you i think that is a great thing i i love talking to you adam because you're always i mean i just took two pages of notes i always end up buying books after we talk (laughs) um but you just have such great ideas and you're well there's a few you don't have to buy because because i've got extra copies now because (laughs) when i when i when i attended the lincoln fellows program in, in this year they said, Oh, you're coming, you're coming to the program. Oh, we'll send you the books. So they sent me a 55 pound box of books. Wow. Uh, you know, ab- about the American founding, the constitution, the administrative state about, about, you know, black lives matter about, you know, all of the, the hot button issues that you expect. And fortunately I already owned most of them. So now I have extra copies to give out. Awesome. You just strategically think and synergize so many great ideas and um, it's so helpful to talk to you. So I, I hope I hope our listeners are really encouraged by this conversation because I think um, it just takes what could be a really you know kind of sad political landscape and says you know there's still we still have we still have personal agency we can still do something really important and valuable not just for our lives but for the lives of our of our children and our grandchildren and. And hopefully the American democratic community that, it, you know, democratic Republic that is to come. Um, and that is, that's really, that's a hopeful message. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, it was, a, it, was a, it was a pleasure to have an opportunity to spew all of that in one sitting. <laughs> oh my gosh. So many great, I, and you guys check the show notes because I will hopefully put everything um, that I took notes on in a coherent way for you to find links and books and, and other things. Um, this is how Adam teaches. And for those of you who don't have your kids in Adam's classes, if you have kids in high school, you really need to check out Adam Prusan's live online classes that he offers through Trinortham School Academy. The Politics, Philosophy, and Economics is going to be offered this fall as a three-credit honors class. And both of my um, younger kids took his class. Uh, they took several of his classes, but that one they said literally changed their lives. And um, and so really, Adam, I'm not even kidding. You are, you're in their top, you know, three to five people that they just have so much gratitude for because 
you really taught them to think outside the box and, and they kind of live in that milieu anyway. So you took it a you took it a step further. Um, you're also going to that, that made my day. Oh, no, they just, they think the world of you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, you are also going to be teaching, um, strategy, war and peace again this fall. This is, and, and these classes are limited. They're smaller than our normal, um, class sizes. So once they're full, they're full. But the strategy war and peace class, the kids are learning how to think politically and they're they're learning how to sort through all the political stuff that is coming at them. Um, and so that I really appreciate because it's a very practical class, but also you're going to be teaching them why countries go to war and why countries don't go to war. <laughs> and, and well, and, you know, it's it's the first time I've taught it now and and I had no idea how it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, it's going pretty well. Yeah, and, I, I I have usually when I don't hear anything about a class, it's going terrific. <laughs> so yeah, I, I and and well, people and, well and, and and for you know for me as the teacher, if if there's like five or six or seven or eight um, people already queued up to get into the Zoom room every time I open the Zoom room, yeah. you know when I click when I click start and boom, there's already like five or six people waiting. That's a, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. I love it. So you're gonna, I think we've decided you're only going to take 12 kids. Um, it might be eight to 10 for PPE, um, and 12 probably for strategy war and peace, because the other thing you really do with your, with your classes, it's very Socratic in how you interact with kids, but you really teach the kids how to write. I try. try. Yeah. It's a gift. Um, yeah. So, um, Anyway, I love your classes. I'm so grateful that you're teaching for True North. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that, really. That made me. Yeah. As, um, so shout out to our mutual friend Pesakwaliki <laughs> for introducing us all those years ago. <laughs> so you guys, thanks for listening to this week's podcast. And Adam Prusan, thank you so much for joining me once again on Life Skills 101: Life Skills for a Digital Age. Hey, everybody, this is Lisa Nearing from True North Homeschool Academy, and I just want to remind you that you can find all of our classes and clubs, testing, advising, mom's membership, and more at truenorthhomeschoolacademy.com. We do offer live online, dynamic, interactive, small group classes, so when your students take classes with us, they're not in a, they're not in a Zoom room full of 100 people. We keep our class sizes small so that the students get to know both the teacher and their fellow students. We um, use a lot of different technology to make the classes dynamic and interactive, including presentations, projects, breakout rooms, virtual whiteboards, and more. Um, We like to say that we use time-tested educational pedagogy coupled with cutting-edge technology to bring the best educational opportunities to your students in, in the privacy of your own home. We do provide syllabus and grading for all classes. Um, Clubs are more relaxed, so we don't provide syllabus or grading for those, but you can certainly use our clubs for the transcripts, and we'd love to help you know how to do that. Stay tuned this year, 2022, for some exciting new um, classes and clubs being offered by True North School Academy. Um, We're also going to be offering an honor club, dual enrollment, and so much more. We are honored to partner with you as you homeschool your children. Again, check out truenorthhomeschoolacademy.com. And thanks for listening to today's podcast.